0: Our American stories and the Thanksgiving story? Well, you're about to hear it for the hour. It didn't become a national holiday until Abraham Lincoln declared it so in 1863. But the story of its miraculous birth and the pangs that accompanied its delivery to the New World began hundreds of years before this inauguration. What you are about to hear is the spellbinding story of how it all began. And what it means to us today.
1: They want to hear a Thanksgiving song. Alright.
2: All right. This is uh this is a Thanksgiving song, I hope you enjoy it. Turkey Lurky do and Turkey Lurky Dap.
1: I eat that turkey, then I take a nap. Thanksgiving is a special night. Oh, I love turkey on Thanksgiving.
0: Happy Thanksgiving, everybody.
3: Thanksgiving is the only American holiday that has actually remained relatively innocent it's not something that we have been able to commercialize but there's something going on here more than feasting family and football and I'm not talking about the time you constructed a belt buckled paper hat what is it about these pilgrims why do we pay so much attention to these immigrants to the new world they were always viewed as irrelevant weird and different they didn't start a college the Massachusetts colony did that college is called Harvard. The Pilgrims never became rich or influential. In fact, William Bradford, the governor of Plymouth Plantation and the man who documents the founding of the Plymouth Colony, thinks at the end of his life that everything the Pilgrims had done had been a failure. So what is it about their experience that makes them so worthy of attention?
4: As I may truly unfold
3: the story of Plymouth Plantation I must begin at the very root as with many immigrants their story begins thousands of miles away it is told through the writings of one man who lived it the year is 1607
5: the place Scrooby Manor
3: in North Nottinghamshire
4: England
5: under the flag of religion then said the
4: Lord, I shall endeavor to manifest this history in a plain style with singular regard unto God, the simple truth in all things.
6: Double vengeance
4: unto them At least as near to the truth as my slender judgment can attain.
3: That was William Bradford. His record of everything that happens on their voyage and arrival to the New World is our best source of information. He keeps detailed records because he believes that what they are doing is tremendously important. Bradford's writing is later published as Of Plymouth Plantation, but it is not published until some 230 years later, in the 1850s. Lonely and intelligent, in a world that feels increasingly precarious and adrift to him, the 12-year-old Bradford seeks solace in the Bible. Bradford writes that reading the scriptures makes a great impression upon him, and the more he reads the more troubled he becomes at the gulf between the world he sees around him and the simplicity and purity of the gospel.
1: Oh, Father, who in heaven, hallowed be thy
6: He had this profound sense as a 12-year-old that the congregation he was a part of was corrupt, that the church was moving them in a direction that was not right that they prayed to the depraved beliefs of mortal men that were moving them away from God. And so this was a deep conviction. And I think there you have the beginnings of a very complex, inward-looking person who was
3: improbably preparing for the ultimate journey. In 1607, Bradford is an orphan living on his uncle's farm. But his passion is his faith. And
5: without a prince,
3: two men become his mentors.
4: This famous and worthy man, John Robinson, was our pastor for many years. And without Mr. Brewster, a reverend man like a father to me, became an elder of our church.
5: Love a woman beloved of her. These
4: two men guided us in all things. It is they who labored in this secret church to have the right worship of God and discipline of Christ according to the simplicity of the gospel. Um, Yet others persisted to disturb the peace of our poor persecuted church. Return and seek the Lord their God.
3: One wouldn't know it by looking at them, but these worshippers are breaking the law. The official state religion is the Anglican Church of England. King Henry VIII established it 70 years earlier in 1534. He placed himself at the head of the church, replacing the Catholic Pope in Rome. English Protestants were overjoyed. They saw England joining the great Protestant Reformation of Martin Luther and the overthrow of the old Catholic Church. Here's Dermot McCulloch, Professor of Church History at Oxford University.
7: The old church had power because it said that it could help people to get to heaven by saying masses for their soul. Luther and the Protestants said that wasn't so. God had all the power, we have none. And by saying that, they said that the old church had no power. That is what split the Western world apart in the 16th century.
3: But real change in the Church of England is slow to come. Many of the pilgrim separatists are fined or go to jail for not attending the Church of England and for starting their
7: own separate congregation
3: that secretly meets in people's homes.
7: In the early 17th century, the Church of England still had remnants of the past like stained glass. The church still had bishops and priests and deacons with cathedrals, choirs. In other words, it looked rather more like the old church and a lot of Protestants did not like that one little bit.
0: And when we come back, More of William Bradford's struggles back in England. We're celebrating the story of Thanksgiving here on Our American Stories. More after these messages. This is our American Stories and we continue with the story of Thanksgiving and we go back to William Bradford and his struggles back in England.
3: These pilgrim separatists feel the King's Church can never be purified.
7: They must separate from it completely. That's the difference between a Puritan and a separatist. Puritans simply wanted to change it, make it better. Separatists make another big leap of the imagination. They say you shouldn't have a Church of England. You shouldn't have a Church which is connected with the civil power. And in the 16th century, that's a very big deal. Because
3: of the persecutions from the Church of England, the pilgrims decide to run away, to leave England en masse, to leave behind everything that they have known, because their Christian conscience demands it. They arrive in the very libertarian seaport city of Amsterdam, Holland, which is the most exciting, prosperous, cosmopolitan city in the whole world, known for its religious toleration. You can do anything you want there, and the government won't interfere with you. Amsterdam's reputation in the early 1600s is about the same as it is today. A city famous for its prostitution and 500-plus alehouses, So when the pious pilgrims arrive in Sin City, it wasn't according to their expectations. Within a year they decide to move again, 22 miles south, to the much smaller city university town of Leiden. Leiden is a much better fit, but shortly after arriving, another idea begins to generate a great deal of enthusiasm from some of the more daring leaders of this tiny little group. They feel called to move again, Would you want to go?
8: Most are content with their labors here. We labor only as God wishes. Aye, yet some
4: prefer
5: and choose the prisons in England rather than liberty in Holland Ah, with these afflictions. Faith, if some better
4: and easier place
5: could be found, it could draw many and
4: take away these discouragements. And where would we go? Where could we go? What's of America? There are vast and unpeopled countries in America which are fruitful and fit for habitation. I have not heard that America is
6: unpeopled.
5: There are no, no. men there, but only savages who need...
6: This is an extraordinarily audacious uh, proposition because up until this time, uh, there was only one existing supposedly successful English settlement, Jamestown, and that was hardly a success. Uh, people were dying at a frightening rate every
3: year the pilgrims decide to make their home in the new world where they can pursue their godly path without interference and without compromise. But how do these poor pilgrims get the money they need in order to finance the trip? They apply to investors who might like the idea of exploiting a bunch of religious fanatics like themselves. A deal was made they use a big part of their very limited resources in order to purchase the aging vessel called the Speedwell. But the Speedwell will fail to live up to its name.
6: She was called the Speedwell. And this was intended to be a vessel that would provide them with a way to explore the coast, search for furs, and if the worst should happen,
3: it would provide them with a a method of escape uh, from the new world. About fifty-five Pilgrim separatists leave Holland on the speedwell for England. With a
4: prosperous wind we came in short time to Southampton. There we made port and found the bigger ship
3: come from London lying ready, with all the rest of our company. The Pilgrims see for the first time another ship loaded with supplies, waiting to join them for the trip across the Atlantic Ocean. This supply ship is called the Mayflower. The Mayflower was a merchant vessel, a cargo
6: ship. She was not designed to carry passengers. She's about 180 tons, which means you could fit 180 casks of wine, tons of wine in its hold. She was beak-bowed, square-rigged, with high castle-like structures, fore and aft. She was a very reliable ship, standard transportation of the early 17th
3: century. The recent arrivals from Leiden are reunited with William Brewster and two fellow separatists, John Carver and Robert Cushman, who have been hard at work setting up the voyage. On August 5, 1620, as they prepare to depart, the pilgrims say their farewells, which are deeply emotional. Edward Winslow, who was one of the chief men going along on the voyage, describes the scene as follows we refreshed ourselves after our tears with the singing of songs making joyful melody in our hearts as well as with the voice and indeed it was the sweetest melody that ever mine ears have heard and then with mutual embraces and tears they took their leaves one of the other which proved to be the last leave to many of them after three years of planning and preparation two ships The Speedwell and the Mayflower are finally on their way to America on what will prove to be the most historic voyage in human history.
5: They weren't the people that you would expect to be founding a new colony. They weren't soldiers, they were not emissaries of a foreign government, they were not particularly well provided with supplies. At least half of them were separatists, that is to say radical Protestants, who were religious exiles, who had been living in Leiden, the Dutch Republic. They weren't the people you would automatically expect to be founding a new outpost of the British Empire.
3: The Mayflower is under the command of Master Christopher Jones. He isn't a religious man, but he is a remarkably decent one. He is so moved by the Pilgrim's devotion and faith that he offers to bunk with his petty officers and gives his cabin to the women and small children. He and his ship have been hired to take the Pilgrim's provisions to America, and then return to England. The two ships travel west for seven days, and then to their shock and dismay, the Speedwell begins to wallow and take on water. Not soon
2: after, the Speedwell has trouble. The master of the Speedwell noted that um, she was taking on more water than they could handle. Here's how passenger
3: William Bradford chronicles this moment. We had not gone far, but Mr.
4: Reynolds, the master of the lesser ship, complained that he had found his ship so leaky as he durst not put
3: further to sea till she was mended. Because of the leaky speedwell, the ships do not turn back once, but two times.
6: Can you imagine the miles that they retrace their steps all the way back to England?
3: The pilgrims lose an entire month while attempts are made and valuable food provisions are sold in order to repair the speed well.
6: It's early September. This is not the time you want to sail to America. Westerly gales are screaming across
3: the Atlantic. They'd be right in your teeth if you head out. William Bradford writes that some 20 passengers decide the voyage is not a very good idea and get off the ship for good. He also writes, It was judged that
4: the Speedwell would not prove sufficient for the voyage, upon which it was resolved to dismiss
3: her and proceed with the Mayflower alone. On September 6th, 1620, fearfully late in the season, everyone got on the Mayflower, left Plymouth Harbor, and set out on her own across the Atlantic.
2: Because of the Speedwell having to stay behind, there are many more people on Mayflower than they anticipated carrying initially. There were, ultimately, 102 passengers on on Mayflower on a relatively small ship. It's a
6: dark, dank, airless space, less than five feet high. So, you, you know, you were hunched as you walked up and down. There were some animals down there, goats and pigs and chickens and provisions. It was more like a cave, I think, than a place fit for human
2: habitation. Along with 102 passengers on the Mayflower, was between 25 and 35 crewmen on board.
4: All being now compact together in one ship, we put to sea again with a prosperous wind, which was some encouragement unto us.
0: The story of Thanksgiving continues after these messages And again, Thanksgiving didn't become a national holiday until Abraham Lincoln declared it so in 1863. But my goodness, there's so much more to the story when we come back that trip across the Atlantic to the new world here on Our American Stories and go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear all that we do. That's ouramericannetwork.org. This is our American story, celebrating Thanksgiving. We now pick up with the Pilgrims sailing across the Atlantic, on board the Mayflower with Captain Jones and his crew
3: of delinquents. The rough and tumble crew do not take their cues from their kind captain. Bradford writes, Yep, according to the usual manner, many
4: were afflicted with seasickness. What a lot of dribbling cock-queens! A bloody psalm-singing, God-fearing puke-stock and bean farmer going to America! <laughs> 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 you see that quail, lily
9: little, little kicksie-wixies?
4: One of the seamen of a losty, able-body, which made him Don't the more haughty. He would America. always be condemning the Don't poor people and their sickness and cursing us daily with grievous execrations.
9: <laughs>
4: Into the bucket, girl! It's worse than the others.
3: <clears throat> The haughty seaman tells the sick pilgrims how much he looks forward to the day he could sew them up in shrouds and feed them to the fishes. There's no sanitation facilities. If you are seasick, which many are, and have to vomit, if you have to perform your other bodily functions, you're doing it in a slop bucket and you're trying to hit the target on a moving deck. That people probably miss, so that it's not surprising that people comment on the stench below decks.
6: Shipboard fare in the 17th century was pretty much what shipboard fare would be for centuries to come, and that is miserable. <laughs> You've got beef in barrels, heavily salted, to preserve it. One daily ration of the ship's diet would give a sailor or passenger on a ship like Mayflower over 6,000 milligrams of salt in the day. Sodium intake at that level causes dehydration and hypothermia, as well as having long-term
10: effects like high blood pressure.
6: The big problem in the 17th century was drinking water. The drinking water in in England was not reliable, so people relied on beer, primarily. And uh, children drank it, everyone drank it. I'm going to see the ordinary ration was one gallon of beer per day per person, which uh, comes out to rather a lot of beer.
3: The Mayflower is now halfway across the Atlantic and the relentless teasing of the pilgrims is about to end for good. Of the
4: haughty sailor who so figged us with his daily curses, it pleased God to smite this young man with a grievous disease, and so was himself the first that was thrown overboard. Thus his curses light on his own head, and it was an astonishment to all his fellows, for they noted it to be the just
3: hand of God upon him. The death of a sailor is answered by the arrival of a new passenger. Only one other passenger dies on the voyage. William Button, a servant, ignores the urgings of Captain Jones to drink his daily portion of lemon juice in order to prevent scurvy. And this disobedience costs him his life. Then, on November 9th, 1620, after more than two months at sea, a crew member spies a line of high bluffs gleaming far off in the early dawn light and shouts out excitedly to Captain Jones. I see it! Land! But their jubilation quickly dims as word races through the ship that they made landfall far north of their intended Manhattan Island destination.
4: first. dry.
3: On Friday, December 16th, 1620, the Mayflower with its cargo of sickened and sea weary passengers and crew anchors a mile offshore. Everything was wrong.
9: I mean, they had to reach the shore by wading through ice cold water to the shoreline. And Bradford says,
4: at one point, The weather was very cold, and the spray of the sea lighting on our coats froze so hard we were as if we had been glazed.
9: And they caught cold and they died.
3: In the harsh winter ahead, half of them die. A fire during a snowstorm burns up much of their precious winter clothing. But the fire fails to reach the barrels of gunpowder in january and february sometimes two and three died in a day
4: bradford calls it the heart of winter
3: it's just a very grim time the biggest toll the most painful toll was by march 13 of the 18 wives die they die keeping their children alive all seven daughters live and 10 of the 13 sons live Somehow, they keep their hopes up by coming up every Sunday to listen to the preaching of William Brewster, who assures them that this is all God's will. Finally, by the middle of March, there's a turning point. It happens on a Friday. It's fair, and the sky is blue. They are still weak. They are still fearful. When they spot a tall, muscular Indian wearing only a loincloth and carrying a bow, Break cover from the line of trees among their huts and walk boldly into their camp. They shout out,
9: Indian coming! Indian coming! Indian coming! coming.
3: With rifle in hand, they approach with incredible caution. But as he draws within range, the Indian shouts out in perfect English, Welcome. Welcome! The pilgrims responded in kind. And then, in a fateful interchange, the next word from the Indian is, have you got any beer the pilgrims are caught flat-footed they don't have any beer they respond our beer is gone would you like some brandy and the answer to no one's surprise is a wholehearted yes as they drink the brandy they discover that this particular Indian whose name is Samoset developed his English skills and his taste for beer by spending time with English fishermen who tried to colonize on the New England coast. What had said that was particularly interesting is that there was a Christian Indian by the name of Squanto who spoke perfect English and was living nearby. Squanto became a Christian and spoke English because he was captured and made a slave for nine years in England before he was able to buy his freedom and return home on a ship captained by John Smith. Yes, the John Smith of Pocahontas. As Smith's ship departed, Squanto was almost immediately captured for a second time and sent to the much crueler Spain. Then, just as he was about to be sent to North Africa, where he would have been a slave for the rest of his undoubtedly short life, some Catholic friars were able to buy and rescue a few of the Indian slaves including Squanto. So Squanto lives with the friars in a monastery and he becomes a Christian. He also learns to speak perfect English and perfect Spanish and learns to pray every day and becomes quite devout. With the help of these friars who had befriended him and became quite impressed by his fine mind and his remarkable character he gets enough money to buy his way back for the second time. Two months before the Pilgrims arrive to the Pawtuxet village in what is today Massachusetts, Squanto finds his village absolutely deserted. Everyone from his tribe has died from a series of plagues that swept across New England. Once Squanto meets the Pilgrims, he will change everything. As William Bradford declares in his own recollections, as many as were able began to plant their corn,
4: in which service Squanto stood us in great stead, showing us the manner how to set it. Also, he told us unless we got fish and set it with the seed, the corn would come to nothing.
9: The fish helps the earth. It's worth feeding
4: our He was our interpreter and was a special instrument sent of God for our good.
3: Squanto never leaves the pilgrims until the day he dies.
0: This is our American stories, the story of Thanksgiving. And when we come back, the final chapter. This is our American Stories, the story of Thanksgiving. And we pick it off with the pilgrims being back on their feet, thanks to Squanto, who teaches them how to survive in the new world and guides them in building a trusting relationship with a neighboring Indian tribe that he's been living with. Now let's return to the story. On October of 1621... Bradford
3: writes about the preparations for what we now know as the first Thanksgiving.
4: Thus, our peace and acquaintance was pretty well established with the natives about us. We began now to gather in the small harvest we had and to fit up our houses and dwellings against winter, being all well recovered in health and strength. We had all things in good plenty, for some were exercised in fishing, about cod and bass and other fish of which every family had their portion. There was a great store of wild turkeys, of which we took many. Our harvest being gotten in, our governor sent men
9: on fowling, so we might, after a more special manner, rejoice
1: together.
9: They've made peace with the Indians. They had a good harvest. So they decided to have something that was familiar to them back in England, a kind of harvest feast.
7: It was like God had sent them a strong message, okay, you're on the right path you've actually made it through the first real test, which is surviving your year and having enough to continue.
3: Squanto's close friend and Indian chief Massasoit arrives with 90 of his braves, who are carrying a bunch of dressed deer. The table is set, and the first thanksgiving prayer is said.
5: Oh Lord, hear us, Lord. How few, weak, and raw were we at our first beginning in this howling wilderness, in the midst of strangers, and yet, God, Thou hast wrought this peace for us, Thou hast brought us these allies.
3: The real heroes on this first Thanksgiving are the last four surviving pilgrim women who prepare the feast for the 140 attendees. Not surprisingly, these first Thanksgiving friends spend their post-meal time partaking in activities that are not too far from the spirit in which we partake in them today.
2: They might have been racing, they might have been wrestling, they might have been competing with bow and arrow. I bet they were drinking together. It's a rowdy affair. It's a male-dominated affair more than anything else.
9: They put on, to the best of their ability, a display of their weapons and their martial organization. So both sides are showing off their strength. Amongst other recreations, we exercised our arms.
4: Massa men went out and killed five
9: deer, which they brought to the plantation and bestowed on our governor, upon the captain and others. One thing that's very important is that deer were a high-status food. They were very carefully bestowing these as marks of respect. For three days we entertained and feasted.
4: Three days of celebrating in native society that's
7: typical as a matter of fact that's probably short
9: did the wampanoags eat the english out of house and home during these three days quite possibly but the english are free to come and visit
2: the villages of their native allies and receive similar hospitality that's how kin treat one another that's what the wampanoags expect by virtue of this alliance that's the point of the whole exercise William
3: Bradford and Massasoit will remain friends and allies for as long as they live, despite increasing tensions from the arrival of thousands more Europeans into the Cape Cod territory. Bradford, though uncertain of the colony he founded, was certain about the final destination of his
7: pilgrimage. Abel. Enoch. Noah. Noah. Abraham, Sarah, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and being persuaded of them, and embracing them, and confessing that they were both strangers and pilgrims on the earth. They desired a better country, that is a heavenly one, wherefore God was not ashamed to be called their God, and he hath prepared for them a city.
3: The pilgrims could never have dreamed of how much their quest for a godly republic would transform the world they were sailing towards, the searchers themselves and the nation that would rise up long after they were gone, consecrated to their memory.
10: We love the story of Thanksgiving because it's about alliance and abundance and envisioning a future where Native Americans and colonial Americans can come together and celebrate the providences of a single God. But part of the reason that they were grateful was that they had been in such misery, that they had lost so many people on both sides. So in some way, that day of Thanksgiving is also coming out of mourning. It's also coming out of grief. And this abundance that is a relief from that loss But we don't think about the loss. We think about the abundance.
11: Oh, there's no place like home for the holidays.
3: And that abundance is found in family, in going home for the holidays. If there is such a thing as a typical American Thanksgiving the Spikyotish family dinner might just qualify. Every year, several generations come together over a boisterous, chaotic ritual no one wants to miss.
9: we have gravy?
0: And yeah. oh, yeah. yeah. the mashed potatoes. Sure, after I pass
10: the gravy, okay, we've got sweet potatoes. <laughs> and the turkey. Hey-go. It's truly an American holiday to me. I mean this is our holiday. Nobody else has it like we do. The people who are here come together and we all understand what it is that we're being thankful for. This is our American holiday.
11: From Atlantic to Pacific. Gee, the traffic is terrific, Go
7: there. Today in our society where there are no clear answers, we look back at a time and a holiday such as Thanksgiving that once had clear answers. This is very simple. The pilgrims stood for piety. They stood for patriotism. They knew where they stood. We don't. So we look back and we see Thanksgiving as a time where everybody is on golden afternoon sitting together around the Thanksgiving table and the families are secure and the ideals are secure, and there's football on the television, everything's wonderful. And it just fits very well.
10: Thanksgiving retains a lot of meaning for Americans today. I think that people are conscious of that. The fact that they have food on the table, the fact that they can gather together, that has meaning to them. And just enjoying a good time with your friends around a table and having a wonderful meal those are our true pleasures in life and shouldn't be underestimated. Thanksgiving makes us pause and say we're lucky we have this.
3: What started as a makeshift meal in a tiny New England village has today become a national celebration of feasting and family togetherness. Thanksgiving may not be the very religious day it once was, but the last Thursday in November is still clearly a sacred date on America's national calendar.
11: For the holidays you can't beat home, sweetheart.
0: And great job on that, Greg. And what a story that is. And again, Thanksgiving didn't become a national holiday until Abraham Lincoln declared it so in 1863. And we learned about the abundance. And my goodness, we learned about the scarcity. We learned about the joy, but we also learned about the grief. By the way, the grief of simply leaving home and leaving everything you know, that's grief. Anybody who's ever done that, I know my grandfather. He shared it with me. He left Lebanon. But it was easier then. Leaving home than losing so many people, so many women, so many men. What a story, a uniquely American story, and we share it with you here on our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we love doing This Day's in History, and we love music, and this combines both. And by the way, we love theater. It combines all three. This Day in History, The Sound of Music, opened in 1959, and as always are This Day in History's are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College.
3: I'm standing in the heart of New York City's Times Square in front of the gorgeous Lunt-Fontanne Theater, where The Sound of Music opened on November 16, 1959 and ran for 1,443 performances.
1: The hills are alive With the sound of music With songs they have sung for a thousand years The to my heart with the sound of music
3: Now, did the young Austrian nun named Maria really take to the hills surrounding Salzburg to sing spontaneously of her love of music? Did she comfort herself with thoughts of copper kettles and doorbells and sleigh bells and schnitzel with noodles? No, the real life Maria von Trapp did none of those things. She was indeed a former nun, and she did indeed marry Count George von Trapp and become stepmother to his seven children, but nearly all of the particulars she related in her 1949 memoir, The Story of the Trapp Family Singers, were ignored by the creators of the Broadway musical her memoir inspired. The real life von Trapps did escape Austria as the Nazis came to power, but they didn't flee over the Alps. They got on a train to Italy and then traveled to America where they had a concert tour scheduled. The day after they left, Hitler ordered the Austrian border shut. The von Trapps then settled in Stowe, Vermont, where they opened the Trapp family lodge, which is operational to this day. While the liberties taken by the show's writers and composers caused some consternation to the real Maria von Trapp and to her stepchildren, those liberties made The Sound of Music a smash success from the very opening night on this day in 1959. With a creative team made up of Broadway legends, Writers Howard Lindsay and Russell Krauss and composers Richard Rogers and Oscar Hammerstein. Add to that a talent as enormously popular and bankable as Mary Martin playing Maria. It was no surprise that The Sound of Music sold two million dollars in advance tickets. People continued to flock to this theater, despite two negative reviews from the New York Times, like this one that said the show lacked the final exultation that marks the difference between a masterpiece and a well-produced musical entertainment. During her two years as Maria, Mary Martin only missed one show, and due to the design of the two-story set, Martin had to run three miles during every show to make her entrances and exits. The original cast recording of The Sound of Music was nearly as popular as the show itself. Recorded just a week after the show's Broadway premiere and released by Columbia Records, the album shot to number one on the Billboard charts and stayed there for 16 weeks, selling upwards of three million copies worldwide. The soundtrack featured songs like Do Re Mi. Do, Here's my favorite things.
1: Raindrops on roses and whiskers on kittens. Bright copper kettles and warm woolen mittens. Brown paper packages tied up with strings. These are a few of my favorite things.
3: Sixteen going on, seventeen. the team's final collaboration, Edelweiss. Edelweiss, Edelweiss bless my homeland forever. All these world-renowned songs were introduced right here at the lunt stage in 1959. The Sound of Music was the eighth and final musical written by Rodgers and Hammerstein but Hammerstein never saw the movie. He died of stomach cancer nine months after the Broadway premiere. The show was made into a film in 1965 and starred Julie Andrews as Maria and Christopher Plummer as the captain. It won five Oscars, including Best Picture and Best Director. The Sound of Music contains more hit songs than any other Rodgers & Hammerstein musical partly because the film version was the most financially successful film adaptation of a Broadway musical ever made. This day in history, The Sound of Music.
1: So long, farewell, I'll be same, good night. I hate to go and
8: miss this pretty sight.
0: And it's so hard to interrupt this song. It's my little girl's favorite. We watched this movie I can't tell you how many times. And I'm looking forward to seeing a great Broadway revival of it soon. It's been a long time. And by the way, in 1959, this play ran for 1,403 straight performances, which was unheard of. And again, that 1965 film version, which brought this play to the world, five Oscars. And by the way, you were listening to Mary Martin performing there Mary was the Broadway dom, one of the great Broadway actresses and singer-song and dance types. She could do it all, Mary. She was 46 when she originated this on Broadway in 1959, and she could not have been too happy when in 1965, at the age of 52, she was bypassed for a younger and, well, more sprite face and voice, that of Julie Andrews. And the rest is history. And we love to bring you our This Days in History, as always, brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale can get to you with their terrific and free online courses. And my goodness, there are so many of them. Again, go to hillsdale.edu, where they teach all the things that are beautiful in life, all the things that matter in life. And so we leave as we started with some music From the Sound of Music, this time from the film soundtrack and Julie Andrews. In 1959, on this day in history, the Sound of Music debuted on Broadway.
10: Raindrops on roses and whiskers on kittens. Bright copper kettles and warm woolen mittens. Brown paper packages tied up with strings. These are a few of my favorite things. cream-colored ponies and crisp apple strudels, doorbells and sleighbells and schnitzel with noodles, wild geese that fly with a moon on their wings, these are a few of my favorite things. Girls in white dresses with blue satin sashes, snowflakes that stay on my nose and eyelashes, silver-white winters that melt into springs. <laughs>
0: This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories that touch on every part of American life. One theme that cuts across many of our stories is the theme of innovation, and today we're joined by Tim Harford, author of a great book titled 50 Inventions That Shaped the Modern Economy. And We're going to dig into just a few more of those inventions, and by the way, we've done a bunch of segments with Tim. Go to ouramericannetwork.org and catch them all. That's our ouramericannetwork.org. And Tim, today, let's start with something near and dear to us here in Mississippi, and that's air conditioning. My dad used to tell me that everyone he knew went to the movie theaters for one reason only. It wasn't whether the movie was any good or the cartoons. There was air conditioning.
8: Talk about yeah, it. this is why we have summer blockbusters. Uh, absolutely, it's just a place to go where it's cool and in the, in the heat of the sun. So, air conditioning is is a fascinating invention. There's a um, uh, wonderful writer, Stephen Johnson, who argued that air conditioning elected Ronald Reagan. And you think, well, how does how does that work? <laughs> well, air conditioning changed the demographics of the United States. It enabled many more people to live comfortably in Texas, in Florida, all those people retiring to Florida and then starting to vote Republican. So it's changing the political landscape of the United States. And in fact, it's it's changing the, um, the shape of the world, really, for, for similar reasons. So you, you think about these uh, amazing new cities that are have in the last few decades been growing: uh, Singapore, Hong Kong, Shanghai, uh, it, it, Dubai. Uh, you go to these places; there is no way you can build a glass-walled skyscraper in Singapore or Dubai without air conditioning. It's completely impossible. There's no way that technology. Uh, will work without air conditioning so it makes possible skyscrapers in warm climates it make, makes a lot of things possible that, that we take for granted
0: indeed the other thing it's a companion almost to air conditioning not the same but i'm skipping ahead to chapter 22 and it's the elevator i want to read something quickly we don't tend to think of elevators as mass transportation systems but they are they move hundreds of millions of people every day and China alone is installing 700,000 elevators a year. How did elevators change the world?
8: Well, let me just justify that statement about mass transit. Just imagine a, a building such as the, the Sears Tower in Chicago. I guess we call it the Willis Tower now, don't we? Or the Empire State Building in New York. Um, think about all those floors. These are roughly 80, 100 stories. Think of all those stories, and now let's just chop them into single-story or two-story buildings and we, and distribute those buildings all over a big office park, it's an out-of-town office park. And think of all the, um, all the car parks you need to have around them. and Think of the enormous amount of space that that office park would take up. Now, because they're all stacked on top of each other, um, you don't need the car parking. You don't need people driving their automobiles uh, to get to this space. You just go in on the ground floor, get in the elevator, and you can be taken to any floor in the building. So that that's why I say it's a mass transit system. I think it, that, that's absolutely an absolutely inaccurate um, description. Uh, how did it shape the world? Well, it made the skyscraper possible. There is really no way you could realistically have a building more than – and that ten stories, unless you have a functioning elevator, or actually more to the point, the real innovation is is the elevator brake because we 've had elevators for hundreds and hundreds of years, but nobody is going to get in an elevator uh, that 's going to go any serious height unless it 's safe and Otis, yeah, that guy uh, Elijah Otis invented the elevator brake and he demonstrated it at one of these world's fairs. Uh, It was a hugely theatrical demonstration. He was lifted up, up, up above the crowd and standing behind him on this scaffolding. You would imagine the drama of it. There's a guy with an executioner's axe and he raises the axe as though he's about to strike off Otis's head. And he swings the axe down and he chops the elevator rope. And everyone in the crowd screams and the elevator falls about a quarter of an inch. And then Otis yells out to everybody, all safe, gentlemen, all safe. He's demonstrated that he has developed a safe way to make uh, the elevator work. And they are, in fact, incredibly safe. They make skyscrapers possible. And they're really enormously efficient. So the the people who who are concerned about energy efficiency and they talk about double glazing, they talk about insulation, they talk about all the ways that you can uh, reduce the fuel consumption of a building. One of the, the best ways of all is an elevator because you shift a lot of people using a counterweight, pack them all into a very dense area, and you can have a, a very low environmental impact city like Manhattan, very low environmental impact, and yet still generate a tremendous amount of, uh, of uh, economic output, of, of income, and it's all possible because of the elevator.
0: Indeed. Let's talk about the barcode. Now, that doesn't seem too glamorous, but without the barcode, my goodness, Walmart, Home Depot, none of this stuff is possible, is it?
8: Uh, No, it isn't. And I I should say on the subject of glamour, the idea of... Of this book, the, the 50 inventions that that the modern economy. It's not to pick the 50 most important inventions. It, it's to try to surprise people a little bit, and to get them to look at everyday objects in a, in a different way. And the barcodes one of the, one of the great examples of that. So um, so the barcode was um, was invented several times really, but but the the real inventive moment, and I'm drawing a blank on the, the um, inventor's name for a second. It may come to me. And he, was, um, he was sitting at the beach. He was visiting his uh, grandparents. And he was thinking of the time he'd spent as a Boy Scout communicating in Morse code. And he'd been trying to figure out this problem. How do I create an automated till? And um, he dragged his fingers in a lazy circle through the sand and then he looked down and he he saw he'd created a kind of um bullseye with his fingers the ridges and the troughs and he realized he could use those ridges and troughs to uh convey a code morse code and so the original barcodes were in fact bullseyes the idea of the bullseye is well you can scan it in in any direction doesn't make any uh, any difference it's always the same um in the end of course the modern barcode is linear uh And it took several decades to get the computers cheap enough and the lasers cheap enough to make it a a practical technology. But once it was there, well, actually, I should say before it was there, there was a huge debate in the retail industry. You had the big retailers, you had the food manufacturers, and everybody was arguing rooms full of lawyers over the barcode. And they were arguing for a good reason because they knew that the exact design of the barcode, how it was put together, who had to pay for the infrastructure. These things were going to make a big difference. They were going to advantage some retailers. They were going to disadvantage others. So there were these huge fights. Uh, and of course, the, the retailers didn't want to put the, the barcode scanners in until the food manufacturers had barcodes on their products. And the food manufacturers didn't want to bother putting barcodes on their products until… The scanners existed to read them. So there was this all this kind of you go first thing. I mean, um, Miller, I think, had been printing their labels on their beer bottles using the same technology for about 60 or 70 years. So the idea that you're going to retool in order to print these crazy barcodes, not very attractive. But in the end, it was it was done. And as you say, it empowered Walmart and the, the real big box retailers because it solved a problem that they had about keeping track of stock, about keeping the staff on the the checkout, keeping them honest, they didn't put money in their own pocket, everything was scanned through it solved a problem they had, and that the the mom and pop shops didn't have because they they knew what was on the shelves and what was running low. they weren't going to steal from themselves, so it really tilted the playing field in favor of of the of the big players. And Walmart in particular, I think people underestimate how important Walmart was in integrating the American economy with the Chinese economy. They made a huge contribution there, whether you like it or not, um, to introducing these very, very cheap goods. And they couldn't have done it without the barcode.
0: And by the way, that young man was Joseph Woodland, and he was a graduate student at the Drexel Institute in Philadelphia. He was the one pondering that, that problem on a beach
8: he was indeed. And the other story about Woodland is he, he also designed a, a device to play Muzak in elevators. And his father advised him not to go down that path because he said, oh, the elevator business is dominated by the mafia. I've got no idea if this is true, but okay. that's what he was told. The elevator business is dominated by the ma- mafia. You don't want to go in there with your Muzak machine, invent something else. And he invented the barcode.
0: And you've been listening to Tim Harford, author of 50 Inventions That Shape the Modern Economy. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to hear more of this remarkable book. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. is Our American Stories, and this one is unusual. I want to read a quote from John Gardner, the former Secretary of Health under Lyndon Johnson, the President of the United States in the 60s. Quote, the society which scorns excellence in plumbing as a humble activity and tolerates shoddiness in philosophy because it is an exalted activity, will have neither good plumbing nor good philosophy. Neither its pipes nor its theories will hold water. This is the unspoken story about the small, unmentionable seat in the corner of our lives. Or, said another way, this is how we have been shaped by our grossest national product. Here's Greg Hengler.
1: Elvis
2: died in one and Charles V, Holy Roman Emperor, was born on one. Although we use them every day, most of us know very little about toilets. Here's author of The Porcelain God, Julie Horin, and public health historian, David Rossner.
12: Not only did civilization start with the onset of writing, but it also started with man actually coming and getting a, a hold of his sanitation needs
11: creation of sanitary systems were in some sense the basis for creating great cities and great communities.
2: The earliest written reference to the disposal of human waste is more than 3,600 years old and is found in the Bible. In Deuteronomy 23, 12 through 13, God instructs the Hebrews to do their exodus in a holy fashion. You are to have a place outside the camp. Go there to relieve yourself. You are to have a digging tool in your equipment. When you relieve yourself, dig a hole with it and cover up your excrement. For hundreds of thousands of years before this was written, human beings simply squatted when they had the urge to go. As the world became more populated, disposal of human waste became a bit more difficult. In ancient Egypt, cities began to spring up from the desert by 2500 BC, the Egyptians solved the waste disposal dilemma, constructing bathrooms with latrines which were flushed by hand with buckets of water. The latrines emptied into earthenware pipes, many of which are still functional today. The Roman Empire also had a public sewage system. Here's David Rossner and sociologist Stephen Seufer.
11: Rome was not built in a day, but it was built around its water supply system and its ability to get rid of its material without polluting itself or polluting people downstream.
3: Their development of the bathroom was incredible. Middle-class Romans in their homes were able to hook up a private bathroom to the public sewer system that Rome had developed and actually have the waste carried away to the main sewage disposal plant.
2: Like Rome's private lavatories, their public latrines, which were seat holes carved into stone benches, were erected over channels of water that came from distant mountain streams that flowed through aqueducts for over 200 miles. Here's poet Eva Upclin visiting some Roman restroom ruins.
7: This was a communal privy. You'd have sat here, the seat has disappeared, and your waste would have dropped into this drainage channel here. The water flushed the waste away, nobody had to touch it and of course as it dropped into the water that minimized smell. Now then this second water channel running in front of us here was what you would have used to wash yourself afterwards. You'd have had a stick with a piece of sponge on the end, dip that in the water, wash behind yourself, thus giving rise to the phrase the importance of not getting hold of the wrong end of the stick.
2: But the privy which takes its name from the latin word for privacy, couldn't save the roman empire. And when it finally fell, the water-fed toilet fell into the lavatorial dark ages, clogging up toilet innovation for more than a thousand years. During these medieval times, castle dwellers would strengthen their defenses by dumping waste into their moats. The raw sewage discouraged invaders from crossing. Here's physicist Charles Panetti, author of Extraordinary Origins.
9: The only thing that you had indoors for the next, really, a thousand years was the chamber pot. Which was really something of a horror story. It was a convenience in one way when you needed to go in the middle of the night.
12: At nighttime was the time when people would dump the contents of this uh, chamber pot outside their windows into the streets below. And the idea that a man walks on the left side of the female dates back to this time. It was polite for him to get hit by the contents of the chamber pot and to spare the woman.
2: In the 16th century, the flushing toilet made its debut in
9: England. The first nearly modern toilet was made for Queen Elizabeth I in 1596. It was made by her godson, Sir John Harrington. He made it to get back in her good graces because she had banished him from court for using foul language. He came up with a really clever device. It had a tank at the top, it had a valve you opened to let water down, and there was a trap door that you could close after you used the toilet.
2: Harrington's primitive toilet had a critical design flaw. One, the flushing sound was ear-piercing. And, number two, the pipe beneath the bowl was vertical. Waste went straight down, and sewer smells came straight up.
9: The queen complained that fumes came up from the cesspool, uh, but it was a problem that her godson was never able to solve. You realize how bad the situation was if you look at the palace of Versailles. A fortune was spent in constructing it. It had these wonderful hall of mirrors, elaborate chandeliers, and you might have a thousand people being entertained, eating and drinking copiously, but where did they go to the bathroom? There was not a single bathroom in the entire elaborate palace. And the answer is, they went in the stairwells. One of the reasons the French applied so much perfume during that period was to overcome all of the indoor odors from people relieving themselves.
2: Outside Versailles, People were relieving themselves in indoor cesspits. They were simply benches or seats perched over holes lined with wood, stone, or brick. Their main drawback, aside from the smell, was that you had to pay nightmen called scavengers wielding a bucket and a shovel to clean them out and carry them on a horse-drawn cart to local streams and rivers. This is why it pays to be upstream. And if you ventured into town and nature called, a man called a Johnny offered his customers privacy. He wore a large black cape and carried a chamber pot. The customer would pay a half a cent and squat over the pot while Johnny covered him with the large cape. Fast forward to 18th century America, colonists modified the cesspit by taking it outside and constructing a small wooden shack over it. The outhouse was born.
12: They would place the um, outhouses far enough from the house where there would not be uh, problems with smell or with seeping into the water supply of the house. In
2: 1775, while America was embroiled in the Revolutionary War, back in the mother country, another revolution was taking place. British watchmaker Alexander Cumming filed for the first ever patent on a toilet with a twist. Literally the pipe beneath Cummings toilet bowl curved backward in a distinctive S-shaped bend. This allowed water to pool in the U-shaped part of the pipe, cutting off the explosive and stinky sewer gas from below.
9: It actually is the modern toilet because we still have that water separating us from the cesspool today.
2: Long before President Lyndon Johnson held meetings with Robert Kennedy while sitting on the john, the toilet played a leading role in governing our nation. America's first owner of this modern toilet was Thomas Jefferson, who had three of these elite oddities installed at Monticello. By the dawn of the 19th century, one important factor was still missing. Without working sewers, waste was just too big a load for the cesspits of the city and seeped deep into the ground.
0: And when we come back, more on the story, the history... Of The Toilet with Greg Hengler, here on Our American Stories. Stories and that was Jeff Daniels. And the infamous toilet scene from 1994 is dumb and dumber. Let's return to Greg Hengler and the unspoken story of the toilet. By the dawn of the 19th century,
2: one important factor was still missing. Without working sewers, waste was just too big a load for the cesspits of the city and seeped deep into the ground. Here's David Rossner and scientist Adam Hart Davis.
11: If you have a privy and it's uh, not too far away from your pump, you're going to have a real problem. You may literally be drinking the excrement that you're dumping the day
5: before. Absolutely disgusting. And when they had drains, the drains simply went out into the streets, So all the streets were running with sewage.
2: Toilet technology could only go so far until engineers could construct water delivery systems like the Roman aqueducts, able to service entire cities, In 1842, contending with the sudden rise of population due to an influx of immigrants, New York City paved the way. The system's designers harnessed a fundamental law of nature, that water always flows downhill. That water in your city follows the same principle. Water is pumped to the top of giant towers that are linked to pipes beneath the streets. Since the tower is higher than the water's final destination, Gravity maintains pressure and forces the water through the pipes to your tap and toilet. After water is used, gravity is rendered once again and carries it away through sewer pipes angled downhill. During the 19th century, more and more cities followed New York's example. At the turn of the 20th century, plumbing was an exploding business in America, much like web search engines are today. And by the 1930s, America's entire urban population had access to running water. In 1854, a ten-year-old boy, John Michael Kohler, was brought to America from Austria by his father. This boy would become the Steve Jobs of toilet technology. With the purchase of a majority interest in Union Iron and Steel Foundry in Sheboygan, Wisconsin, 19 years later, he founded Kohler Company and successfully traversed the burgeoning sanitation market. The father of six developed his company into one of the few family-owned businesses still in existence dating from the turn of the century. About three quarters of feces is water, and 10% is undigested food, but the remaining 15% is all bacteria, billions of them. And it's these bacteria that give feces its distinctive smell. Most of the bacteria are harmless and spend their lives processing the food inside our intestines, but some are lethal.
5: Faeces contain all the fiber that we can't digest that comes in the breakfast cereal and then fresh fruits and vegetables and so on. They contain the remains of dead blood cells, which is why it's brown, because that's what the remains are. It's stuff called bilirubin, which comes from broken down blood cells, and it contains enormous quantities of bacteria. And if you ingest those bacteria, if you eat them, then you're going to get very ill.
11: Historically... The two great diseases that are associated with human waste are, of course, cholera. People can be perfectly healthy in the morning and be dead, literally dead in the evening. And uh, typhoid, another horrendous disease that is terrifying in its various aspects in that it creates terrible welts and rashes and also terrible fevers and sickness among anyone who comes into contact with it.
2: Between 1831 to 1832, 50,000 Brits died from cholera. In Paris, cholera killed 18,000 in a single summer. The U.S. was next.
11: Cholera had been moving east from Asia into Europe. And in 1832, it had reached Paris and it had reached London, and it was a very, very serious disease we never expected to hit here. And then 1832, it hit Boston, it hit Philadelphia.
2: More than 150,000 Americans died during the two cholera pandemics between 1832 and 1849. With the help of the new toilet, the westernized world was drowning in its own excrement. The smell, germs, and death finally led politicians to an effective solution. High capacity sewers that carried the waste far away from town.
5: They're sort of monuments to excrement, if you like. And uh, I've been down the sewers, and it's absolutely amazing how well they were built. The stuff running through them is not fun, but the sewers themselves are utterly brilliant.
2: As the astronauts were to be the heroes of the 20th century, in the 19th century, toilet inventors were the giants that walked among men. The key innovation was a water siphoning system to force waste through the base of the bowl with unparalleled efficiency. What worked then, still works now. Once the toilet bowl's flush handle is pulled, a valve inside the holding tank called the flapper opens up and water drains quickly into the bowl through a series of angled holes under the rim. The man who is often credited with inventing this flushing wonder probably had little to do with it. Thomas Crapper. Yes, he really existed. What he did patent is the pull chain that worked in conjunction with a valveless cistern, thus decreasing noise and preserving water. Due to his toilet innovations, the Victorian-era plumbing magnate earned himself a place in toilet history, if only by selling lots of them.
12: During World War I, when American soldiers were stationed over in Britain, they would come across a lot of these toilets, and they started the euphemism of, I'm going to the Crapper, and they based it on what they saw on the toilets, which said Thomas Crapper and company.
2: And the John is derived from the toilets installed at Harvard University in 1735, which were emblazoned with the manufacturer's name Reverend Edward Johns. While Crapper and Johns were making a name for themselves, two enterprising brothers were busy inventing the toilet's most essential accessory. Although the Chinese invented paper in the second century, it took them more than 1200 years to get around to using it in the bathroom. They finally did in 1391 AD, but it was strictly for the use of emperors. Where did that leave commoners? People generally used their hands, and and currently
12: in many uh, countries around the world where paper is a premium, people continue to use their left hand. That is why when you travel to uh, parts of the Middle East, Southeast Asia and Asia, you won't find any left-handed people. Everyone there is right-handed because the left hand is considered unclean.
2: In medieval Europe, commoners used hay, grass, and plant leaves to clean themselves. In early America, millions used corn cobs. The cobs were softened first by prolonged soaking in water.
12: The corn cobs were generally given to the pigs to eat, and then when the pigs were finished with them and there was just the cob left, they would take those and use them to wipe themselves. So there was very little waste.
2: When mass-published newspapers and catalogues became commonplace in the 19th century, Americans finally said goodbye to corn cobs and hello to Sears Roebuck.
12: People would take the catalog, hang it in their outhouses, and they would read from it while they were doing their business. And at the finish of the business, they would tear off a piece and use it to wipe themselves.
2: Things changed in the 20s.
12: Unfortunately, Sears started using glossy print paper. The absorbing benefits of the catalog kind of lost it. So you didn't see so many people using the Sears catalog as toilet paper from then on.
2: By that time, however, consumers had another option, real toilet paper. Here's Ken Fishberg, author of Toilet Paper Encyclopedia, and Charles Panetti.
0: There was a man named Joseph Gaietti. He was a New Yorker and he had a paper business in New Jersey. He was the first person who actually took paper, cut it into sheets, into small sheets, and sold it through drugstores as therapeutic paper.
9: The people who bought them thought the paper was too nice and ended up using it as stationery, writing on it, and still using their catalog.
2: In 1879, entrepreneurs Irvin and brother Clarence Scott began selling rolled toilet paper. It was made from tissue paper bought from other manufacturers, which they cut up, rolled, and repackaged. Although there have been some improvements over the years, today's toilet tissue is made basically the same way. In the 1940s, Scott's competitor, Northern Paper Mills of Green Bay, Wisconsin, began using chemicals to completely dissolve wood fibers and referred to their toilet paper as splinter-free. Today, nearly 2.4 billion people around the world don't have toilets. Nearly 150,000 people die every year from cholera. That's more than AIDS. In 2007, the prestigious British Medical Journal's 11,000 medical experts and readers, mostly doctors, voted modern sanitation as the number one medical advance since 1840. Not antibiotics, not vaccines, but toilets and clean water. The average human life expectancy increased nearly 35 years over the span of the 20th century. Roughly 30 of those 35 years are attributable to improvements in sanitation. Unless you count NASA's space toilets, the post-war era brought mostly incremental shifts in shapes and colors and shag carpet seat covers. While Harrington's godmother Elizabeth I might be baffled by a 21st century porcelain throne— Queen Victoria would easily recognize the seat upon which her great-great-granddaughter, Elizabeth II, does her sovereign business.
10: Harry, are you in there?
2: In this modern Game of Thrones, Be right out! we're all privileged members of the same royal family.
10: I hope you're not using the toilet, it's broken.
2: I'm Greg Hingler, and this is Our American Stories.
0: And great job as always, Greg, and what a story. And by the way, we learned about this problem in cities too when we were discussing the evolution of the automobile. Horse poop all over the streets of New York, Philadelphia, Boston. You'll learn this only here on Our American Story.